If, uh, if you would, to the book of Colossians, chapter 1. I, uh, I, I struggled with sermon prep a little bit this week, not, not because there's anything particularly difficult to deal with in this passage, uh, but simply because in, in my Bible, in the ESV, if you have the ESV, uh, the subheading is the preeminence of Christ. And so if you're going to preach a sermon on the preeminence of Christ, you better get it right. Um, so really, uh, a struggle is, is you could probably preach three to four sermons out of this passage, uh, but it's important to see how, how things are connected um, to one another. And so we're, we're going to look at just Colossians 1, verses 15 through, through 20 this morning. I was going to go through 23, but yesterday afternoon I decided to split that uh, into, into two sermons, um, which I'm glad because we have corporate prayer this morning, and so need to keep it a little shorter. Uh, I, I actually had probably the greatest opening sermon illustration you've ever heard in your life ready, uh, but we just we have to nix it because, so just pretend. Um, before we read it, though, I want to do just a quick refresh on the overall theme of the letter to the Colossians. There's three scholars out of Southern Seminary that wrote an introductory uh, textbook to the New Testament. Um, short read if you're interested. Clocks in at about a thousand pages. Um, but they have a section on the book of Colossians, and they wrote this, and I think it's helpful for us to, to get the overall theme. So he says, Paul's letter to the Colossians is perhaps the most Christocentric letter in the New Testament. Colossians offers a strong corrective to the false teachings in the Lycus Valley that minimize the importance of the person and work of Christ. Paul firmly places the emphasis back on the centrality of Christ in all things. The letter clearly and passionately argues for the supremacy of Christ, the sufficiency of his work for the believer, and the application of Christ's lordship to every aspect of the Christian life. Colossians thus serves as a stringent reminder of the serious problems that arise when one's focus is taken off of Christ and he is displaced from the center of the Christian life. So when we talk about the preeminence of Christ, the word preeminence just means surpassing all others. Uh, the word supremacy can fit in there. Um, so that's one theme, but there's another aspect of Colossians that's, that's going to come up in a bit. And it's this concept of the already and the not Yet. So by this I mean that God's ultimate purpose in redemptive history is to redeem a people for himself uh, from sin and death and ultimately to return the entire universe back to the garden, a new heavens and a new earth where God's people dwell for all eternity in a new creation that's rid of sin and death and suffering. So in Paul's letters as a whole, in all of his letters, we see a tension in the already and the not yet. Um, now, the, the not yet is, is, is that we're not going to see the fullest expression of God's redemptive purposes until the return of Christ. Okay, when he puts all enemies finally under his feet, the last of which is death. Okay, um, but the already is the sense in which this future event has already broken into, into history uh, through the redemptive work of Christ 
on the cross, and, and then his work in redeeming sinners and the activity of his body, his covenant people, those who are redeemed as a new creation. So these scholars, they, they note that in Colossians, like I said, you see the tension in all of Paul's letters, but in Colossians, Paul leans into this already aspect more so than he does in some of his others, other letters. So Christ is supreme now, Paul says. Christ is ruling and reigning now. Christ is preeminent now. Not just something that we're waiting for in the future, but something that is broken into now. So the reason that Paul is, is emphasizing these things is because he's addressing what's known as the Colossian heresy. Now it's called generically the Colossian heresy because no one can actually put a finger on what exactly the heresy was. Back in the 70s, one scholar listed about 44 potential things that, that this heresy could have been. Um, but one thing that is universally agreed upon is that whatever the nature of this heresy, uh, it denigrated the preeminence of Christ. Okay, if you look at Colossians 2, you see aspects of, of these false teachings. And in every instance, Paul brings the Colossians back to the supremacy of Christ. Therein, why we have this passage, probably one of the, the best sections of scripture um, speaking of Christ's supremacy over all things. So with a little bit of that background information in mind, let's stand in the honor of the reading of God's word. And we're going to read Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. Paul writes this, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell." And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, we thank you for this passage of scripture that, um, that, that puts Jesus on glorious display. We thank you that Christ is preeminent. We thank you that he surpasses all things, that he is supreme. And this is not just something we look to in the future, but now. He is preeminent. He is supreme. He reigns and rules over all things. I pray that you would help me to proclaim that clearly this morning, and I pray that you would help us to understand that this morning, and that we would, that we would draw hope from this truth. We pray these things in the name of the preeminent, glorious, supreme Christ. Amen. All right, you can have a seat. So the first statement that Paul makes is that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He is the image of the invisible God. Now, I think if, if we hear that phrase, the image of God, we're kind of catapulted back to the book of Genesis. In Genesis 1, uh, when God makes male and female in his own image, in his own image, he created them. But I don't think that that is, is necessarily what Paul is getting at, okay? Because we have to remember the context. The Colossian church is made up primarily of Gentile converts and new converts at that. So when they hear that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, they're not going to hear that and say, oh, well, Adam 
is the image of God, but he was an imperfect image of God, so he must have just been a shadow of the substance and been pointing forward to the full substance of the image of God par excellence, who is Jesus, right? Uh, That's true, but I don't think that's what the Colossians would have heard. Uh, Instead, what Paul is doing here is he's, he's utilizing terminology that the Colossians would have been familiar with, okay? Uh, one, one commentator, his name's David Garland, he wrote, in Greek philosophy, the image of something has a share in the reality that it represents and may be said to be that reality. An image was not considered to be distinct from that which it represented. So that's why pagans would worship idols made of silver or stone or whatever it was. We would say, that's dumb. It's just a rock. Uh, And it is just a rock, but not to them. To them, that rock was an image. It contained the very essence of that which it represented. So for Paul to say, to use this terminology, Paul's making this point, that as the image of God, Jesus is an exact as well as visible representation of God, illuminating God's essence. So it's worth checking out some other passages, help us flesh this out a little bit more fully. Um, if you go to the next chapter, Colossians chapter 2, verse 9, it says, For in him, in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. In Hebrews 1, 3, uh, don't, don't try to, I hear pages, uh, maybe you can keep up, but if you can, we have certificates for Bible drill. Uh, I'm just going to read these, okay? Hebrews 1, 3, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. 2 Corinthians 4.4 In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Of course, John 1, 1 and 2, in the beginning was the word. The word was with God and the word was with was God. He was in the beginning with God. And then a few verses down in John 1.14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then in John, uh, John 14, verses 8 and 9, is, is a great example. So Philip says to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. And Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? I think the point is made. Why is Christ preeminent? Because in him, the fullness of deity dwells bodily. He is preeminent because the fullness of God in him dwells bodily. The fullness of God's nature and character is revealed in Christ so that we're not left wondering, what is God like? We can know what God is like because he's revealed himself through his word written, and through his word made manifest in Christ. So if that's true of Christ, then Christ is preeminent, and he should be preeminent in our lives. He should reign and rule supreme in our lives. He's not simply a moral teacher. He's not just a good example to follow. Christ is the God of all creation made manifest to us. Therefore, he is preeminent, surpassing all things. Paul goes on to talk about Christ's role in creation. And the first thing he says is that Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. 
To take this to mean that Jesus is the first created of all creation is to fall into heresy, uh, a heresy with a name called Arianism. Arianism was one of the, the early battles that the church faced. It, it had a foothold in the early church. And Arianism essentially boiled down, taught that, that Jesus was not co-eternal with the Father, but that he was created by the Father, the first of God's, God the Father's created beings. Now, the greatest of all, but still the first created being. This, this heresy was officially kind of refuted, um, declared as a heresy in the year 381 at the Council of Constantinople. Um, it's why we have the Nicene Creed to this day. The Nicene Creed was in response to the Arian heresy. And so it really kind of simmered down, uh, and anyone who was an Arian was a heretic, and no one listened to him. But Arianism is not dead, and, and I'm talking about the heresy of Arianism, not uh, uh, not the, the racist organization, okay? Arianism being this heresy. Arianism is still alive in the Jehovah's Witnesses, okay? Jehovah's Witnesses, what they believe about Christ is almost a copy and paste of Arianism. Uh, the LDS view of Jesus Christ is very, very similar to Arianism. So there's nothing new under the sun. Anytime a cult pops up and says, we have a new teaching, no, you don't. You're just recycling old heresies, okay? So it's not, it's not dead still. So firstborn over creation is, is not a statement of time. It's a statement of status and privilege. The Greek actually, uh, the, the syntax and the grammar plays that out well uh, to where the NIV, if you have an NIV, that's probably the best translation of this phrase. It's going to read firstborn over all creation. So if we think biblically, of the firstborn, to be the firstborn child gives you preeminence over your siblings, okay? As the firstborn, uh, that makes me feel good, right? <laughs> Except that he's, he's bigger and stronger than me, so I can't assert it too well. <clears throat> it gives you preeminence over your siblings. It's a status symbol, okay? The inheritance of your father comes to you. So for Jesus to be firstborn over creation places Jesus as supreme over all creation, surpassing all creation, outranking all creation. And then Paul goes on to further to explain why. Why is Jesus firstborn? He says, for or because Jesus made it. He says, all things in heaven and on earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones, rulers, authorities, uh, dominions, are made by Jesus, through Jesus, and for Jesus. John 1.3 says, all things were made through him, and with him, without him was not anything made that was made. So if all things are created by Jesus, does it not stand to reason that Jesus stands supreme, preeminent, surpassing all things, and that Jesus reigns and rules over all things? To say that Jesus made all things, that all things are created by, through, and for him, and that he doesn't reign and rule over them, it's nonsense, okay? It makes no sense. So Paul goes on that not only did Jesus create all things, but in verse 17, he's before all things, and in him all things hold together. So he made all things, and he continues to sustain all things. All things owe their existence to Jesus. The universe is not self-existing. It's not self-sufficient. Individuals are not self-sufficient, okay? They only hold together because Christ holds them together. Now, some people would say, no, it's the law of physics, right? Um, 
okay, who, who holds the law of physics together. Well, one commentator called Jesus the system of systems. If Christ stops sustaining all things, the fabric of the universe folds in on itself. So again, if Jesus sustains all things, does it not stand to reason that Jesus is preeminent over all things, supreme over all things, reigning and ruling over all things? If he created and he continues to stain, then Christ is preeminent. So for our lives, if Christ created us and he continues to sustain us, then he must be preeminent in our lives. Okay, Uh, the Truth and Grace Catechism book that we use with kids here at Northridge fleshes this out pretty well. Um, Kids, I'm going to give you permission just for a second to yell during the sermon. Please do, because if you don't, it's going to put me in an awkward position. So I'm going to I'm going to ask the questions from Truth and Grace. Okay, Are are you guys ready? And you shout them out. Okay, who made you? And what else did God make? Why did God make you in all things? How can you glorify God? And why ought you to glorify God? There we go. Right? From the top rope. So do you hear that answer? Okay. Why ought you to glorify God? Because he made me and takes care of me. Worded differently because he created me and he continues to sustain me. That's why we glorify God. How? By loving him and doing what he commands. Our kids got it, man. It's not, it's not difficult. They got to figure it out. <laughs> Paul goes on from here. So he's talked about Christ's preeminence over all creation, his supremacy over all creation. Now he narrows it down more specifically to his preeminence over the church. He says in verse 18 that Christ is the head of the body, the church. Now, um, this is a practical illustration for us, very practical for us. Our head is important. Do we agree? Yeah. We can, we can survive without a lot of things. Um, some of us maybe, well, not me. Uh, I was blessed with all, all things that I need. Um, some of us may be missing gallbladders or appendixes. Uh, we can live without fingers, toes, even legs, arms. Our head, hips, <laughs> fake ones, uh, our head is not one of those things that we can survive without, Right? Our head is not one of those things. And what is the relationship between the head and the body? The head controls the body. The body carries out the will and the desires of the head. Now, of course, our body doesn't always do what our head wants. The older, the older we get, uh, the more that becomes true. Uh, there was a time when I could dunk a basketball with ease, and in my head, I still can uh, body doesn't follow through. My dad tells me at 63 or whatever he is that he still feels, uh, he said, in my head, I'm still 25. Uh, but my body tells me, tells me otherwise, okay? So here's the implication for us as the church. If Christ is the head of the church, then the, then the church itself, the body, must operate in the way that we're supposed to. One, in unity, and two, in function. If your head wants you to go left, or wants you to go straight, and your left leg wants to go left, and your right leg wants to go right, 
You're not going where your head wants you to go. Your body has to be united with the purpose of the head. And then in function, okay, a healthy body is able to carry out the desires of the head. Uh, That mysterious game that Mickey was talking about that he knows nothing about is the Super Bowl next Sunday, um, (laughs) in which the Houston Texans are not playing in, sadly. Uh, Today's the Pro Bowl, right, which used to be cool, and now it doesn't matter. Um, But the reason those guys are professional athletes is because they're fine-tuned machines and their bodies do what what their head wants them to do, right? Uh, All of us in our heads may want to be an Olympic sprinter, but there's only a few. There's only a few who can actually do it. So as a church, we must be united as a body and we must function as a healthy body. Now, this unity is not just unity for unity's sake. Throw out doctrine so that we can just be united, okay? Unity is a unity in purpose, a a unity based on truth, a unity based on truth. So a church that's united is a church that is united based on what God has revealed to us in his word written and his word made manifest and acting on that purpose revealed. And then we have to, we have to function in a healthy manner. For your body to be healthy, you have to eat right, you have to exercise, you have to sleep, you have to take care of it. In the same way, the church to be healthy must take care of itself to submit to the word written and manifest in Christ. I think it's good that we've gone through this book, The Habits of Grace. We finished discussing it in Sunday school. How do we, how do we be healthy? We participate in the means of grace that God has given us, the word, prayer, and fellowship with the body. That's why we don't take our cues as a church, as a local church from culture. We don't take our cues from church growth experts. We don't take our cues from the big church, whatever church might be down the road that has a lot of people. So they're obviously doing something right. So we should do whatever they're doing, right? We don't take our cues from that. We take our cues from the head of the church, Christ. And we submit to the preeminence, the supremacy of Christ. Paul goes on, um, to, to talk about a couple of concepts that we're going to unpack. First, he says that Jesus is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. So in writing firstborn from the dead, I just told you that firstborn of creation is not a statement of time, but it's a statement of status and privilege. Uh, firstborn from the dead actually is obviously a statement of status and privilege, but it's also a statement of time. The reason being in the Greek, there's a preposition supplied ek, which means from. So Jesus is the firstborn from or out of the dead. Uh, so, so we know that it actually is an order of time. Now, that might cause you to scratch your head because we know that Jesus was not the first one to come back from the dead. Lazarus came back from the dead. Jairus's daughter came back from the dead. But what did they do? They died again, right? They died again. Jesus is the firstborn from the dead and that he's the first one to rise from the dead and not die again. And there's a couple of important things to think about. One, that's a a central theme of the believer's hope. As Christ came back from the dead and remained resurrected, so we one day will rise from the dead and remain that way. The Bible says that Jesus will return to consummate his kingdom, and he says all will rise from the dead. The wicked will rise to everlasting 
judgment and punishment. The righteous will rise to everlasting life with Christ physically on a new created earth, a recreated earth, renewed earth, depending on how you want to look at it, rid of sin and suffering and death as it was in the beginning. Physical, resurrected bodies. Uh, But then there's another thing that Paul says that's interesting. He says, Jesus is is the beginning. And he says this in, in regards to to the church, okay? He's the head of the body of the church, the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. So in Jesus's life, death, and resurrection, something was inaugurated. It was initiated, it was started, and that something is, is a new creation. And, and here's what we need to see, and, and it's, it's really a, a glorious thing for us to see, that on one hand, the fullest expression of this new creation will not be seen until the return of Christ. But there's a taste of it now. Remember, we talked about earlier the, the already and the not yet. Okay? So we will not share fully in Jesus' resurrection until the end of the age when he consummates his kingdom. Okay? That's the not yet. But that doesn't mean that there's not a taste of it already. Listen to these verses. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. In the book of Ephesians chapter 2, I'm not going to read all of 1 through 10, but to summarize it, Paul says, You were dead in your sins, but God has made you alive in Christ and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places. Romans 6, 4 says, We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Galatians six fifteen, For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. Ephesians 4, 22 through 24 says, To put off your old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and be renewed in the spirit of your minds and put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Christ is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. And how does this happen? How do we enter into this new life, into this this new creation within creation? Paul says it's through reconciliation. The reconciliation. Reconciliation is simply the restoration of friendly relations. Adam was created with a harmonious relationship with his creator. He sinned. That relationship was broken. As a result, death spread to all mankind and all all humans are born with a sinful nature. All humans are born separated from God and objects of God's wrath rather than objects of God's mercy. Those friendly relations have been broken. Okay, reconciliation is the process of restoring that relationship. How does that happen? Paul says, by making peace by the blood of his cross. So in order for friendly relations to be restored, sin had to be punished. And sin was punished on Christ. As Christ went to the cross, he took the punishment upon himself. Okay? He wasn't paying anything to Satan. He was paying the debt owed to God, bearing God's wrath upon himself, he took that punishment so that all who call on the name of Jesus will be saved and will be reconciled to God. Not on the basis of our own work and merit, but on the basis of the work and merit of Christ. 
Now notice what Paul says in 19 and 20. Okay, for in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on heaven or on earth. N.T. Wright, um, biblical scholar, who you know, I don't agree with on everything, but when it comes to kind of this topic, he writes some good stuff. He wrote this. He says, All creation awaits the consummation when it will be drawn into complete harmony with the Father. The Bible tells us that all creation, right, is groaning. So all creation waits for the consummation when it will be drawn into complete harmony with the Father. Christ's death and resurrection were all part of the divine purpose to accomplish this end, and this mystery can now be seen by all. In the meantime, Christ exercises his worldwide rule in the church. So do you see what he's saying? He's saying is that all creation awaits the not yet. But in the meantime, it's broken into the already as Christ reigns supreme through Christ and played out through the life of the church. So remember, the head carries out the will and the purpose and the activity, the body carries out the will, the purpose, and the activity of the head. N.T. Wright goes on to say, if Christ is the head of the church, it means that the destinies of creation and the church are bound together and that God's purpose for all creation gestates in the church's congregational life. The church does not exist to meet the needs of its members or to ensure its institutional survival, but instead to fulfill the redemptive purposes of Christ, its head. So God is reconciling all things to himself through Christ, and that activity happens by the power of the gospel played out in the life of the church. I'm going to read a couple of more passages. Ephesians 1, 19 through 23, Paul writes, uh, And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead, and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. So Christ is above rule, authority, power, dominion, above every name now, okay? In the age to come, but also in this age. And he put all things under his feet, and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Psalm 110, verses 1 and 2, a messianic psalm. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies." Remember what Paul said just a few verses up in Colossians 1, 3 through 6. Uh, was a couple sermons ago, about two months ago. He wrote, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. 
Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. So you see that already not yet tension there. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, okay, the not yet, but of this you already have heard in the word of truth, the gospel, which is bearing fruit and increasing in the whole world now, okay, the already. So here's what we're seeing, that Christ is preeminent, that he is currently ruling and reigning, and that means that Christ's rule and reign, or the means by which Christ exerts his rule and reign, is through the church, the body, as the church, the body, fulfills the redemptive purposes of the head. Now, of course, evil still exists in this world, and it will continue to exist in this world until Christ returns to fully consummate his kingdom and bring out the fullest expression of the new creation. But in the meantime, Jesus still reigns and rules in the midst of his enemies. Think of the cross, okay? The greatest victory to ever be won in the history of mankind. We agree? As Christ was bloodied, hanging on the cross, gasping for air, to us, does that look like victory? No, it looks like, well, this guy lost. And yet it was the greatest victory to ever be won in the history of the world. He reigns and rules in the midst of his enemies. Think about this. What evil has stood in history? None of them, right? An evil rises. It has its 15 minutes in the sun. Maybe it's 15 minutes. Maybe it's a few centuries, and then it is crushed. And then maybe another rises up in its place and it has its time in the sun and then it is crushed, okay? It's the cycle of history over and over. What has never been crushed? Christ's church has never been crushed. Jesus promised the gates of hell will never prevail against it. Was there dark times? Were there, I'm sorry for the grammar. Were there dark times, the middle ages? Sure, but you know what happened in the midst of the middle ages? post tenebras lux. Out of darkness, light. God still preserved his church. Even in those times when the church itself became corrupt and the papacy rose to power and the reformers came out and they called the Catholic church the antichrist because it was so bad and so corrupt, God still preserved his church. It has never been crushed. And in the midst of that, Man, it's not like the whole world was just consumed by, by a, a, an evil Catholicism, right? There was, Christ was preserving his church through all of it. You can go, that's a, whole, that's a whole thing. We're not going down that rabbit trail. But they were there. There were people who believed in the Bible alone, salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, all throughout that era. And the Lord used them to preserve. Now, there are, there are different views on the extent of this. When we say Christ is ruling and reigning, that he's reconciling all things to himself, three really kind of primary views on this, okay? One view essentially says that everything is a lost cause, okay? Um, that the world is going to hell in a handbasket and we're just along for the ride waiting for it to end. Sadly, that is, has been the predominant view in the United States for about 200 years. 
ever since it was invented. Um, that's why when things start going south in the U.S., all of a sudden people start prophesying, well, the end is here, right? If the U.S. collapses, Jesus is coming back soon, right? That's why. That's why, because this has been the dominant view. Now there's two others, and one of these uh, believes that the gospel continues to gain more and more ground until the world has become largely Christian, okay? How long does this take? We don't know. Very long time, more than likely. And then Jesus returns. He destroys the remaining evil, the final enemy, which is death. He puts under his feet, and he puts his stamp on the consummated new creation. Now, a third view sees the gospel as gaining more and more ground, now just to a lesser extent than the second view, but still the gospel gains more and more ground until Jesus returns. He destroys the remaining evil, judges people for their sin, puts the final enemy, which is death, under his feet, and then puts his stamp on the consummated new creation. Okay? I think that based on our passage this morning, that the latter two views, that the, both of those being that the gospel continues to gain ground, right? those latter two views are the only ones that really do justice to the fact that Christ is preeminent over all things. How can Christ be preeminent over all things and then lose? Which has been said from the pulpit, we lose here. That doesn't seem to be what... Paul writes. The only question is, do we see evidence of it? Uh, Lifeway Research would say yes. They put out an article called Eight Encouraging Trends in Global Christianity that Mickey came across and and sent it to me. Um, I'm not going to read all of those eight encouraging trends, uh, but they are encouraging. You should read them. But just a couple, okay? Worldwide, the population is growing at a rate of 0.87%. Christianity is growing at a rate of 1.08%. So the Christian faith is growing at a faster rate than the population. In Africa, it's growing at a rate of 2.64%. So in 1900, there were less than 10 million Christians in Africa. By the year 2000, that number was 383 million In the year 1900, there were an estimated 400,000 churches worldwide. By 2020, that number was tenfold, more than 4 million. Now, I'm not saying that every one of those churches is just great and healthy and doctrinally pure. I'm not saying every one of those Christians are genuinely born-again Christians. We all know people who say, I'm a Christian, and, and we know most likely they're not. They're nominal, okay? But, but the point is, right, regardless of if those numbers are exactly accurate, it's undeniable that Jesus is preeminent over creation and that he's asserting his preeminence through the activity of the church. And it's not even about those numbers. If you want to be like, oh, I don't care about those numbers, right? We've seen in history that the gospel impacts culture. When revival comes, Individuals are changed. When individuals are changed, the church changes. When the church changes, the culture around it changes. That's why you hear of revival hitting small towns and the bars all closed down. 
Not because the government came and closed the bars down, but because there was no one left to go. Because revival came, Christ asserted his preeminence over that community in in a special manifestation of God's presence and the means of grace, and it changed the culture. You look at the riot of Ephesus in the book of Acts. The silversmiths in Ephesus, they riot because they made their living selling idols that they fashioned, that they formed. Um, And then the gospel catches fire in the city of Ephesus. People are converted. They come to Christ and the silversmiths lose their income because there's no one left buying idols. It's not because the government came in and stopped them. It's because, well, they said, this guy Paul is ruining us. It wasn't Paul, right? It was the power of the gospel played out in the life of the church, the preeminence of Christ stamped on a place. Look at nations that maybe this is a little more subjective, but I I don't think so. Look at nations that have historically been predominantly Christian compared to nations that have not, right? Now, just because those nations are declining in Christian influence, uh, the, the nations themselves are declining as Christian influence declines, as Mickey was talking about judgment, right? Um, doesn't mean that all hope is lost. It just indicates shift, okay? I think it's going to be very interesting to see what happens in the coming decades as the Christian majority shifts from the West to other regions of the globe, right? Where maybe we're like, oh, well, we, we're, we're the minority here. We might feel crushed and suppressed and oppressed, but we got we to think big. We got to think kingdom-minded. We got to think globally. The church, the church is not dying. It's growing. The gospel is growing and bearing fruit everywhere. It's important to look outside of ourselves and to not get caught up in our own situation and to judge everything based on that. Well, the American economy is collapsing. We got, you know, there's crazy stuff happening at the border, and we got this big election, so obviously Jesus isn't in charge, right? Is that not the most uh, individualistic American thing we can possibly say? Here's N.T. Wright again, because I think it's important that we bring this home to our own hearts. N.T. Wright writes, (laughs) The new life in Christ is nothing less than the beginning of the new creation. And if new creation, new humanity. Christians already share in the new age, which began on Easter day. This is worked out in terms of practical holiness, which does not thwart or cramp full humanity. Christ's preeminence over creation, Christ's reigning and ruling over creation takes root in you as Christ is preeminent on over you, and as he rules and reigns over you. So what does it look like for Christ to rule and reign? Okay? It's his people living lives of practical holiness, seeking after God, churches seeking after God, seeking unity in the purpose of the head, seeking to be a healthy church. And as those things move forward, Christ asserts his rule and his reign. N.T. Wright, again, says a further application concerns the church's task in the world. There is no sphere of existence over which Jesus is not sovereign. In virtue of his, both, of his role, both in creation and in reconciliation, there can be no dualistic division between some areas which he rules and others which he does not. 
And then he quotes another who wrote, There is no neutral ground in the universe. Every square inch, every split second is claimed by God and counterclaimed by Satan. The task of evangelism, this is important to remember as we go out on evangelism today. The task of evangelism is therefore best understood as the proclamation that Jesus is already Lord, that in him God's new creation has broken into history, and that all people are therefore summoned to submit to him in love, worship, and obedience. The logic of this message requires that those who announce it should be seeking to bring Christ's lordship to bear on every area of human and worldly existence. He goes further and says, We are now in a position to survey this passage in its totality and to assess the contribution it makes to the developing thought of the letter. The Colossian Christians and their modern counterparts are to thank God Because in Jesus Christ, he has revealed himself to be the one God of all the earth, the creator and redeemer of all. He is not one more rival to the gods of paganism. He reigns supreme over all. He has given himself to his world in loving self-sacrifice to create out of sinful humanity a people for his own possession with the intention of eventually bringing the entire universe into a new order and harmony. And all this he has done in and through Jesus, his son, his own perfect self-expression. So this morning, Christian, I hope that you find, uh, I, I hope that you find hope in this passage, that Christ is preeminent, surpassing all things, that he reigns and he rules over all things, including you if you were in Christ. He reigns and rules over the church, and we as the church are not just walking around with our tail between our legs, poor me, we're just going to get, you know, we're just going to get trampled on until Jesus returns, but Christ is carrying out his purposes in the world and the reconciliation of things through the work and activity of his church, okay? And I think, I hope that we've all experienced, uh, it says in our Means of Grace book, there's a line, and I didn't write it down, something about um, when we gather as the corporate body of God's people and we worship together, that, that's the best taste of heaven that we're going to get. I hope you've experienced that of coming together in corporate worship and people are unified in purpose and in health and there's something about it. Right? There's something about it that I just, I just want to live in this. Right? It's the taste of the, of the not yet in the already. We're going to move to a time of prayer. We're going to uh, tag out, and Mickey's going to come and lead us in a time of prayer. Um, but, but I hope that you find comfort and as we evangelize. I hope that, that you realize uh, we're proclaiming Christ as Lord. Do you want Jesus to be your Lord and Savior? Right? No, Jesus is Lord. It's not about do you want him to be your Lord. He is Lord. Do you submit to that or do you not? That's the question of, of not just evangelism. That's the question that all people have to answer. So Mickey.